Hello, and welcome to the Growth Mindset Podcast, your weekly dose of inspiration and exploration. Join me, your host, Sam Harris, as I discover how mindset can help you do incredible things through my conversations with the world's most interesting people, from tech billionaires to leading scientists, best-selling authors to notorious hackers. The goal is to increase our collective wisdom and attitudes to make us all happier and healthier, wiser and wealthier. Who doesn't want that? Today on the podcast, we have Naveen Arles. He was recently awarded a BCA, which is a British Citizens Award, for his contribution to the arts. He runs the London International Gospel Choir, and he led them to performing at festivals, top venues, and for the BBC. He is a huge advocate of social inclusion and well-being, and he runs musical projects that help refugees, asylum seekers, cancer patients, and even people suffering from mental health problems in prisons. He lives a crazy on-the-go life, always doing a million things, and as I am a member of his choir, I found him just a really huge inspiration. So it was a delight to get time to just sit down with him for an hour and find out more about all the amazing things that he's doing and has done. So yeah, I think he's just super fascinating guy and you'll really enjoy the deep conversation we have about life and lessons we have in the arts. So enjoy. I'm currently eating my breakfast. My breakfast is a BLT and a bottle of Ribena because I'm classy, which means that January the 15th or whatever it was, was the application deadline for the primary school places that you want. The problem is, it's a proximity game, isn't it? Yeah. So they look at the, the school that you live in right now. And mm. what we've done is, my wife is the head teacher of a school in Shoreditch. Oh, cool. But in her federation of schools, there's a primary school, there's one. And it's over by her school, it's nearby. She's a secondary, but they've got primary. And Mina and Holly went to visit it. And they loved it. And Holly was very impressed with the acumen of the children who'd already been there just for one year. So we were like, all right, that's where we're going to go. But we live in E7 and we've applied for school and N2 or whatever it is. Yeah. So they're going to yeah. say no. What's then happened is we now have another eight weeks for me to replace the back door, get the roof on back, relayed so that there's no damp problem, replaster, repaint, pack up, downsize, sell hand off do whatever we need to and then move house change our mortgage get a rent get an estate agent and rent our place out in the next eight weeks so we've decided that she'll find the new place i just have to get us out of our place yeah good division of tasks well yeah i guess because i'm self-employed i can come and do this yay so yeah i've just got a million things to do yeah last night i was at an event with um joe malone if it's a woman actually joe malone is her name Sold the business, so she can't actually use that anymore, but she's CBE now, so she's officially have to refer to her as Jo Malone CBE, otherwise you're trademarking a business that isn't her business anymore. She is massively campaigning for teaching entrepreneurship in schools and skills like critical thinking. Is that like a debate you have a lot, having a head teacher in the house and trying to teach kids more life skills? No, we debate academia very little and the approach to teaching and psychology very little because... By the time Holly gets home from a 12-hour day, she doesn't mm. want to talk about it. And by the time she gets home, I'm generally on my way out. It's a sad thing, but this is what happens when you are a young couple nowadays without familial support, mm. having a child, and both trying to run careers. So having time for superfluous debates on <laughs> the potential of this and that in life. Although it would be obviously fascinating for both of us, and right now, we need to be having a couple more of these debates, thinking about what we're going to do with Mina over the next, because she's four going to be five. And that first not to five is so important. Now the five to 12 batch, we haven't had the time for the debates, but we really need to. 
I'm pretty sure that whilst Holly's liberal in her mind, her understanding of techniques and approaches that have definitely worked and shown mm. themselves to have worked, because her teaching track record is phenomenal. An understanding of the fact that young children who have not been given framework and discipline turn into people who just don't know how to behave and can't fit into an a space. Therefore, engendering youth with really controlled, tight framework enables them to understand their space better in order yeah. to free themselves up. Now, she will argue that line, and she will argue the proof of it. And I can't really argue with the Cambridge mindset capacity and the fact that the national average in the UK is that a child will advance one set in a year, three subsets. That's accepted practice. That's what you need to do. Holly's track record is generally taking children through three sets nine subsets in one year. So she started her teaching career and now she's a head teacher in Shoreditch, teaching gangland children in both. Wow. So when she gets home, I let her have her quiet time. Cool. How old are you guys? Because I'm 40 and she's 38. Wow, you do not look 40. I know. <laughs> it's not helpful in some situations when you need to be able to present yourself as having the experience or the gravitas yeah. to do something. Yeah, I was sitting with a bunch of like the chairs of like the NHS in Manchester the other day and mm. talking stuff and we we're talking about business and things and they thought I was a student doing an intern stuff with the company. I'm like, no, no, I'm leading the whole project that we've been talking to you about, by the way. <laughs> it's just interesting because I think there was a study in some of the reading we did as we were getting ready for Mina, there was a study that was done, I think it was in Denmark, and it looked at a ridiculous number of families. I feel like my memory says 10,000, but that seems crazy. But for a long period of time, they're now coming out with results as to say that children who were born later, parents who had kids much later, were obviously then a little bit more settled in themselves, balanced in themselves, mm. aware and ready and prepared, and had thought through some of the things. And so the children grew up to be quite well-balanced, well-adjusted, and all those things. So this is what we tell ourselves. That's cool. Have you read much books about parenting or... I try to be as aware of potential dad as I could be. During pregnancy, I read the Becoming a Dad and mm. some other books you know, along yeah. those lines, and I try to read the What to Expect, whatever. I prefer reactive human approach to what I do. I don't want mm. science to tell me where the variety is. And obviously, you get on Google, and you can read all kinds of alarming things. So I let her do research, and I do life. I haven't read any books on parenting I guess I haven't needed to, but I've read other books about growth mindset and there's a book called Peak where if you teach a child the pitch perfect, you can basically teach any child that if you start before they're five. Because I've like reading too many of these books, I'd just be like, oh, I need to take my kid to a different country and get them fluent before they're six or something. And Your brain is amazingly yeah. able to adapt to so much, is it not? Mm. And I think that during that formative stage, if you can set it up to be willing to adapt to information, then it will be more likely to do so later. There's two concepts that are interesting to me right now in that one of them is TCKs, and I'm going to forget the other one by the time we get to it, but TCKs is our third culture kid. And I don't know if a lot of people you've bumped into will end up fitting into this box, but a person has a job, moves country in order to go to their job. Fine. Now, nuclear unit family moves, lands up in new country, new culture. Child, under the age of 18, still in their formative phases, settling in. What they do is they have their home culture. They step out into the street to go to school to do whatever they're doing. So this kid then develops this amazing third culture in between the mm. two as a hybrid. So these third culture kids are amazing because in the research that was done on them, you look at military kids and diplomatic kids and missionary kids through earlier times. And then when you get to about the 70s and 80s, massive businesses are expanding. These kids are now growing up. And businesses notice, hey, that person seems to be able to fit in with just whoever, whenever. One of the examples in one of the books I read about it was phenomenal. country somewhere in Africa, I don't know where it was. It was a clinic that was desperately in need of, of treating a disease. 
And for some reason, every time the patients would go and see the doctor, which was consistently every day, all day, they would just walk out of the room, scrumpled up the prescription for the drug that they really, really needed to keep them alive and just chuck it. And the medical center just couldn't understand what was going on. And they brought in one of these TCK, somebody who was just a bit culturally adaptive. And the person just watched for a couple of days and then immediately just took the desk from one side of the room and pushed it to the other side of the room. So the doctor was sitting facing the other way. And this was simply because in cultures where you wash your body with your left hand when you're unclean, uh, yeah. the way they were facing initially meant that they were handing the prescriptions to the people with their left hand. Yeah. And of course, that's unclean now. So nobody wanted to keep it. So yeah. just by simply moving the desk around, then they were facing the other way. They handed the prescriptions out with the right hand, just instinctively based on where you're sitting, right? Yeah. So then people took the prescription and then used them rather than chucking them. Little things that make mm. a difference where you go. So if you were to have a child, one of the things you've got to consider is that if you bring up the child on the same street, in the same neighborhood, with the same faces forever, then their comfort zone is built of those archetypal faces and those people and those behavior patterns and those expectations, those cultural expectations. But if you were to give the child a chance to also see somewhere else and something else, then there's every chance that the child learns to adapt a little bit better, a little bit quicker. And I feel like that's my story. I feel like that's how I become who I become. Because as I grew up, I did nine different schools in three different countries. And I consistently was moving and changing, which meant that now I don't care what room I'm in. I'm automatically friends with whoever I'm sitting next to. I don't have any boundaries because I don't have time to have them, which is why I think people who are transient, people who are traveling, people who have just moved don't feel left or out of place or whatever. Yeah. But that concept of TCK, we have discussed because Holly teaches languages that at some point very, very soon we should be dropping Spanish maybe into the household so that Mina grows up with a good second language automatically in the back of her head. That and music, obviously. Yeah. She sings a lot. She has three pianos. We have mics. She wow. has ukulele. Okay. We have, yeah. But a friend of mine is talking about what you were talking about in terms of you can teach perfect pitch. Let's quickly describe it and then discuss why it's dangerous. Perfect pitch is the ability for the mind to immediately and totally recognize certain frequencies. Now, we grew up in Western society, so we have a certain frequency, 440 megahertz, is identified as A, the one just underneath the middle C on a piano. So somebody with perfect pitch has the ability to hear any sound and rationalize it to the exact scale structure of the Western society and say, oh, that's a B flat, that's a slightly sharp D, whatever. And they can do that with literally anything. But then imagine this, you have perfect pitch and you're a violinist, so you play. But you know that in order to make scales true, every time you play, you adjust slightly your tuning in order to make everything actually perfect. Problem being that a long time ago, we decided to aggregate the tuning. Instruments originally were designed in one key. They could only play in that key because they were designed to perfectly tune to that key. Eventually, we decided, on well, if we adjust every note to about exactly the same frequency and ratio of step from semitone to semitone to semitone, then we can play all keys, right? So actually, keyboards and pianos and everything are tuned to one set of frequencies the whole way up and down. But that means every time you change key, some of the notes are not slightly where they really should be. That's going to bother you because every single note you hear is going to be slightly off. So anytime you play music or hear music with anybody else, you're consistently compensating. There are several studies that have been done, so you can find all the research on it. Thanks. Nice. Time to introduce you. Do you think you could try the challenge of telling me your life story up to now in four minutes? Easily. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. So I'm 40. I was born in 78 in India, and I was born to two Christian missionary parents who are furious academics. They carry four degrees apiece. My dad had enough time to work two part-time jobs, take his studies, go preaching on the weekends, take enough extra credits to get a second master's on the side, on the side. 
So yeah, they were massive overachievers and they came from the lowest caste of India. So that meant that they had no life options. And education and then eventually Christianity was their way out of that. They and are both professors and published and traveled the world, which was a thing that they could never have dreamed of. I started playing piano when I was six because of a dream that my mom had because of something she couldn't have when she was a kid. But the plan had been born as a child with bilateral club feet. I couldn't walk. So I had metal boots and plaster casts nonstop from not till two. So I never crawled. I went straight to trying to stumble around. When I was six, and we'd moved to Scotland when I was four, um, obviously the primary school people were like, as he's running around in gym class, he keeps tripping over his feet. Why don't you take him and help him get fixed? And my parents were like, how do we do that? And so we have the NHS, which blew my parents' minds. So then I spent most of a year in a wheelchair whilst we took both of my ankles out and fused joints together, whatever, whatever, so that I now have what appeared to be completely normal ankles and feet. Through my teens, I spent a lot of time compensating as a kid. Um, so I did martial arts and dance classes and whatever else in order to try and make up for all the things that I didn't like. But the whole plan had always been medicine. Medicine to go to be a healer, to be able to give back. One, because of my direct story of having that help to get to my feet. But two, because India's a country in vast need. And so I could go back and be somebody who would be useful, right? My dad had this idea that his two sons would be his missionary kids. So he'd be a bit like Billy Graham with the sons out there doing pastoring work, whatever. And that totally didn't work. My brother now is the vice president of a finance company in the States, and I am a musical director. But what happened later was that when I was 16, I joined a theatre company, an Amdram company in Edinburgh, where I was then at music school and growing up. And so I was at a specialist music school, seven, eight hours a day at the piano, all day, every day through my teens. That's what I was doing. And I went to this Amdram company through my boys' brigade company. They needed a pianist, so I did that. And then the next year I came back as assistant musical director. And then the year after I was musical director because I knew about music. I wasn't any good at it though, but I loved what I got to do. And what I realized was there were a lot of people who felt better, felt more amazing, had a great time together, made friends by getting in this room together and doing this thing. And it was music. And I went through it around that time as well because I was okay, but I was just a technically well-produced musician. I did a lot of practice. It took a long time before I felt like I even was getting towards that. But I realized with this, I could hit lots of people simultaneously a lot of the time and make them feel better and allow them a space to be recognized or free. It's about large-scale mass healing. And now we have more research that says, yes, people with mental health issues actually is a pain management system for just people with chronic pain and illness. So I now fulfill that need to help and heal and be there for other people by doing it through music. Cool. But yeah, it's quite a good point because I certainly found that I was having some issues whilst I was in London just because there's so much going on and it's hard to always reliably meet the same people and things but I found choir was always a really nice thing that I enjoyed each week to come and join have some healing although I didn't think of it as healing exactly but when you say it like that I'm like yeah it was it was really nice and just to go and sing and be happy as always it started off my weekend really well you're right when you have a tiring day you want to just put your feet in a hot tub of something isn't it nice to just go and allow your soul to sing to let it go just for two hours. Just pretend like none of it can affect you anymore. Yeah, it's really nice. Have you looked much into mental health? No, I haven't. And I say that quite definitively because I've realized that I probably don't understand enough about it and would like to know more for myself. And I would love to wonder about the little things that I do or behave like that bother me. But I think that they're really powerful conditions that some people live through and are amazing at coping with. And those things don't need to be the detail of my understanding entirely unless I decide to become a practitioner in therapeutic means for mm. those things. 
but I just need to be around in order to open a door for people to go to a place where they can start that journey. And in fact, don't tell anybody this, but apparently there are conversations now already in the NHS about prescribing art as preventative upstream method to try and help people. So at some point soon, arts practitioners should get their act together and get on that list. So the NHS will say, well, you are a recognized practitioner. I'm going to send somebody to you for 10 hours, 15 mm. hours, 20 hours, and maybe you will help them feel better and they will not feel like they do now. And that mental state change might allow them to have a physical state change and that would be good for them. Um, we're starting to realize more and more that our mental states obviously do affect our physical states. And therefore, having a good day is better than taking a paracetamol. Yeah, much more. Again, it's time, isn't it? Everybody has their specialism, so I'm mm. so busy running around doing the music, I don't have time to go and research. Yeah, but it does seem like you're naturally just very welcoming of people. You said you're just instantly friends with whoever's there, so even on the first day I arrived, it didn't feel like I needed to come for a year before people would like let me in. It was like, oh, cool, this new guy, yeah, great, come, go stand over there, sing with this guy, and whoever you stood next to was just really happy and it was easy. Because we all take secret drugs before the session. Yeah. yeah. I mean, happiness is an amazing thing, isn't it? And it so naturally spreads. So... Happy people tend to like being around happy people. That doesn't need to be enough. Just humans like being around humans. And it's nice when they're all in a good, fun mood. So when you know you went someplace and it was a lot of fun one time, you're going to go back because it's a lot of fun again. And then you know that that's a safe place. And so anybody else walking into this ball of joy, it's a nice thing. And yeah, music as a vehicle can then also help us hone skills, learn practice habits, adapt information that we already had in our heads because everybody's a musician. Cool. From your experience of a life of music and art. What would you say is your biggest tip for a successful career in the arts? You have to really want it. I saw that a question that people like asking is what advice would you have for somebody who's starting a business or changing career? I think you have to really, really want it because everything will come up against that and everything will test you, specifically in the arts. You don't just become the artist. You have to, at some point, either become a self-managing business and therefore get into the habit of being aware of the administration that that takes, or go and get on an agency, let them do the job for you. But I think, let alone that test, your parents won't want you to do it, because they wouldn't mm. have a proper secure job. My parents were waiting till I was 30, at least, and it wasn't until I got married that they backed off a bit. And the world doesn't financially recognize artistic output, like it does maybe banking sector output. The earning capacity of an artist will always be never quite commensurate to the amount of time and effort they put in. So then your bank will be up against you, your relationships will be up against you, your parents and family will be up against you, and everybody will be waiting for you to grow up and get a job. So if you want to be in the arts, you really have to want it. And there's a brilliant interview with Don Cheadle, the actor, and the actor says, hey, what advice do you have for somebody who wants to become an actor? And Don Cheadle responds with, do you want to become an actor or do you want to become famous? Because are you reading anything right now? Are you in anything right now? Are you auditioning right now? Are you getting with people and running scripts? Because all of these things are the job of being an actor. Or do you want to get famous? Because that's a different thing. In my mind, that interview really goes to a lot of people who think, oh, I want to become this thing. I want to be an actor, a singer, a dancer, whatever. My favorite moment is when you suddenly see the kid in tears who's like, I didn't realize it was going to be so hard. And I'm like, what did you think we do? How do you <laughs> think this happens? Through my teenage years, I wasn't going to parties and I wasn't going out on the weekend trying to figure out how to get drunk or watching endless amounts of TV or playing video games. I was at a piano for seven to eight hours every day around a full day of school. And that's what I did. And I did it so that my hands do what I want them to do now. I get up every day between six and seven, seven at the latest. And that depends on how crazily badly I crashed out. I have my dad's work ethic, which means I just don't stop till I put everything down and go to sleep. 
people who go, oh, if I had a 10-hour day, a 12-hour day, <laughs> talk to anybody in TV production or, or the arts. We all have 12 to 16, 18, 20-hour days frequently. That's just how it works. Yeah, it's a really good point. It's basically the biggest tip to do anything is if you make it your number one priority, you'll get there, basically. Yes, you have to really want it and put it number one. But immediately number two is your ability to be flexible. Because when you talk about actors that you can name, there are a bazillion other actors out there who are doing the job. And then, as I was a pianist, can anybody name the top 10 classical pianists in the world right now? No, you'd have to be an actual classical kid. That's less than, less than, less than 1%. So you have to be able to be flexible in order to define what success means for you. That's cool. It's interesting your point about how do you value what a job is. As being an actor, you won't get as much money compared to being a banker. And just walking past people on the street when they're playing music. And sometimes you walk past the most amazing person. And you're like, well, I haven't paid any money. And I'm just literally walking past. And I guess I could wait 60 seconds and take in some amazing music. Or at a different time in the day, I'll pay 50 quid to go and see some other guy who's famous. He's probably actually not that much more gifted. And it's just really weird the way humans value some things and don't value other things. There's an argument that it's contextual. They actually experimented with this. They took Joshua Bell, who is arguably the world's best viola player, and they put him in a New York subway station for an hour and a half or something. And they watched the video footage. And one person slowed down a little bit, and one person stopped with their kid to watch him a little bit. I think those are the two biggest, most significant things that happened. And maybe some people threw money in. I don't know. They didn't talk about that bit. But if you wanted to see Joshua Bell play exactly the same material the following evening at Carnegie Hall, the cheapest ticket was $150. So you're exactly right. And you walk past this musician on the street, couldn't not be the most significant musician in your life, but you were too busy. Yeah. But it's not about you being too busy. I think it's the fact that, for instance, there's a really strange thing where the person who taught you music in school right now, as we look at our education system changing and changing and changing, do they have as much recognition as the person who's teaching you math in school? And is math the way that you're taught it nowadays in school the thing that you're going to have to rely on in your future job? Or is music the thing? Yeah, so, creative skills can be more useful than math skills if you're not doing maths. They've done the CAT scans. They've done the research now. Your brain is the most entirely active for the longest period when you're doing music. Yeah, it's a really good point. Then what is the biggest mistake you see people make? When they get into the arts? Yeah. I mean, there are a million mistakes you make in life every day. Enjoy them. Do them because we learn from all of them, but some of them are just fun. But if you are so rigorous with your plan that there are no options, then it's going to hurt when the audition doesn't come through. It's going to hurt when the gig doesn't pay off, when the label drops you, all of these things. And it doesn't matter how big an artist you are. You keep growing, you keep selling. But somebody else raised a really interesting point. A banker comes back on a Monday morning. And the bank doesn't recheck that they know how to bank still. Whereas every time an actor finishes a job, or a singer, or a musician, we have to audition for the next one every single time. It's funny, isn't it? Because you'll have Oscar award winning somebody reading for a role. They still read for their roles. Admittedly, it's mostly a given at that point of the game. You're only going to go mm. and get Denzel Washington because you really want Denzel Washington in that role. You're praying he'll say yes. But the kid who wants to become Denzel Washington still has to read for every single role. Yeah. And I think... The other bit is, especially in our field, there are so many potential charlatans. Hey, I'm a writer. Hey, I'm an actor. Whatever. You have to remember that every time you meet somebody, like we talked about before once, the opportunity is that that person's going to lead you to an amazing conversation. What if that person's going to lead you to an amazing next project? You have to be open-minded to everybody you meet. You can't afford to, just because you don't know that person, shut them out. Yeah. But then leading on to the next subject of having control of what you're doing and maybe saying no to things, like how do you handle being a creative genius? versus being structured and arriving on time for things. So 2019 is going to be my year of no, because I am awful at it. 
in terms of being a creative genius, that's very kind of you. No, I'm just really, really lucky and fortunate in all the situations I've been allowed to get involved in. But I am absolutely my own worst enemy in terms of my inability to understand the consequence of saying yes to everything is that now I have to do all of those things. Um, I have to say no a lot more this year. And I guess that another part of the fun of it is that other cultures have different approaches to delivering and promising. There are cultures that just don't enjoy saying no to you. So they'll not say no, they'll say yes, even if they absolutely know that's not going to happen. But I think there's a direct consequence to a person who is so very heavily managed when they're younger, that when the management isn't there anymore, they don't have any self-management system built in. So then they just run riots because they don't understand what the consequences are. Yeah, that's a good point. One of the dangers, I think, of back to education, of when you do things too perfectly, you give the child like all the right opportunities and you're constantly sort of giving like growth minds like, oh, you can do anything. And then they don't have real life. As in, going to a university lecturers now at my school, and they can't just ask people to put their hands up to ask a question because some people are too squared to ask questions. So they have to write in a form to ask questions at the end of the lecture because if it's unfair on some people that are scared, and you're like, well, cool, maybe a few more people ask questions during lectures. But what about when they go and get a job and they can't actually put their hand up at a meeting to say that there's a problem? That's not preparing them for life. No. I'm watching Mina, and she's four, and I'm quite happy for her to fall off something. And it's not that I'm an uncaring parent, but she has to understand what her balance limitations are. I'm freaking out in my mind because I know the tears that are going to come afterwards, but I have to let her do it so that she gets what it feels like. The thing is, if you have a a parental alarm clock, a parental taxi system, a parental homework driving management system, parental ensuring you've done all of these extra millions of things, a parental ensuring you didn't watch TV, not by your choice, but because they said you couldn't, The second they then remove themselves from the picture, you just go crazy because nobody's watching you anymore. And I was very matched as a child. That's what Indian parents expect. And the other part of Indian parenting as well, if it doesn't do what you said, beat it. Well, it does. So that part of various cultural approaches, there's the comedian Russell Peters from Canada. He's Indian descent. And the first sketch that I ever came across him was, white people, please beat your kids. The whole premise of the sketch is... Kids in the playground nowadays are going to come into contact with so many other cultural kids in the playground whose parental disciplining methods are going to be way different. So, you know, you're going to go around the room and you're going to have all the Chinese kids and the Asian kids, as he puts it. So, yeah, I'm just paraphrasing. Then the Africans, the Jamaican kids and whatever. And they all got a good beating last night. And then you get around to the white kid. He's like, I got sent to my room. And Russell Peters' immediate reaction is, you have a room? So in other cultures, it's completely normal. Well, if the kid doesn't do what you want them to do, don't find a positive reinforcement technique over time. So if you have such tight regimen over them, when do they learn that they need to drive that system? When does mm. your mind understand that it sets its own parameters, it sets its timeline, it sets its motivational goals, it sets its reason to go and do the next thing? And it's a funny thing for all of Holly's capabilities and her phenomenal speed at processing all kinds of information. She looks at what I do in a day and can't. She said it several times. I could not do that. I love that. And there's a bell be like 45 minutes it tells me what i'm going to do next it tells me when i'm stopping this and i'm going to the next thing and she loves that okay so how did a setback or failure set you up for later success so in my teens i was reading a lot them doing all the martial arts and the dancing and the having as many conversations with as many people as possible right through my 20s so that you can have an informed conversation with anybody on most topics um some people's just birth situation demands that they want to fight that and become better or different from whatever that was my own things, I guess, are just that I was the kid that didn't become the doctor for a long time. So I was the golden child at school and then didn't become the doctor. It was a failure in that way. But I found that motivation hadn't gone away. 
the want to be the person that cared for the world around them didn't go away. What it did was it changed itself and adapted. And I drove myself towards this. There were moments where telling the truth cost a lot. So I lost a scholarship to the music school, thanks to the situation that happened at the school. And of course, my parents had always taught me to tell the truth. So I did. And three other people didn't. And so they continued with their scholarships and I didn't continue with mine. So that life lesson was a phenomenally interesting moment. And weirdly, what it did was it made me understand that integrity is really expensive, but worth it. Yes, people break the rules in a way that you think is wrong, but then get away with it. And you're like, well, this isn't right. This is breaking all my rules about life of how things should work. Can move on to, you spoke about X Factor, but you obviously won everyone on X Factor, but you did the choir. Ah, so there was a TV competition called Pitch yeah. Battle, which had a lot of potential. I will say this on record. I think that the show was badly handled. I think the premise on which the judging was done didn't work. And obviously, it was all TV, right? So they have a plan. But still, I think they could have done better. Um, what they did, they had a phenomenal asset at that show. They brought over the American arranger and choir genius behind pitch battle movies and behind an American TV show called The Sing-Off, which is where the pentatonics came out of. So that guy, Deke Sharon, is just fantastic. The big show openers for all of that competition, but also for all of the sing-off and the arrangements that are in Pitch Perfect, the movies. He's the guy behind all of them. And they should have used him as an asset in the show to be one of the judges, be one of the standing coaches. They shelved him to the side a little bit, which was a phenomenal waste. Anyway, it was a lot of fun to do as an experience, but didn't entirely musically grow anybody. The choir sent 22, 24 people to the competition and those 22, 24 people did 160 hours of extra rehearsal on top of sectionals and private practice on top of full-time jobs within five to six weeks. It was crazy. It was a huge endeavor and what I didn't do very well was manage burnout. So in terms mm. of being the leader of a team, what I didn't see coming was the fallout of what happens when our definition of success didn't happen. I tried to hold on to the fact for everybody that success was doing what we did, doing something together of concerted effort to excel ourselves as much as we could. So it served a purpose, I hope, for everybody in the group because they would have realized how much more powerful they could have been musically. But at that point, the direct definition of success was make it to the next stage in the show, make it to the next stage, then make it to the end and then win. Unfortunately, is the way that these things are set up. And in the process, I think the people who do those things, specifically all those shows, I really hope that they all take on board that one of the best things they could do is how they develop the people who are in the show during the time they have them, giving them the opportunity to really see where they were at, see where they've grown to, and enjoy that, and then encourage to continue that after they get out of the show. Yeah, but deep and definitely good growth mindset attitude to the whole thing, learning and appreciating that the whole time rather than just trying to achieve one goal and then to having burnout when you don't achieve it or not recognizing the things that you have learned and how you can build on that, which is totally the wrong way to do things when you think about it. Because like yeah, you said, tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. On the subject of tomorrow, I was about to ask you a bit more about the future. What do you think the world would be like in five years' time for creative people? The world already has changed so much in the last 20, hasn't it? So creatives have so many more avenues now to reach such vastly diverse audiences. So in five years' time, I almost have no way of predicting what other new features we're going to have. But I think for me, in terms of the musical process, it's an interesting question. And you tie it back to the question we've just discussed in terms of TV show and TV fame. Moving forward, the actual art of creating music doesn't become different. 
It still requires life experience and it still requires something passionate that you want to talk about. So those things won't change, I don't think. I think it just becomes the avenues through which we can then deliver our music or our creations to people. If anything, they could be more of a maneuver towards better arts teachers and facilitators developing better artists out there. Cool. Then on being more creative and getting into more things, how do you start a choir? Like magic, okay, I own a choir now and it's great. Everyone loves coming to my choir. The magic of getting there. I think that's the thing. You work for other people. That's the point. So you enjoy music and you want more people to do music. So you land up somehow in a situation where you're trying to facilitate more people getting to do music. So you work in company X and company X morale is low or maybe morale is really quite good. And so you're having a lot of fun. So you're like, how, how else can we have some fun together? And then you all go on a karaoke night together and you're like, oh, this is how we can do it. So you go back and you're like, oh, we'll set up a choir. Okay. So then you book a meeting room on a lunchtime and you tell everybody by email and you go sit in the room. You've chosen some songs. We can play along. I can play guitar a bit. This will go fine. And then three people turn up of the nine people that said they would come. So your heart breaks a little bit because everybody didn't come to your choir. You go through that pain a little bit. And the next week, one of them doesn't come back. Why? Why didn't they come back? What did I do wrong? You go through all of these things. And then eventually you have fun with those two people. Those two people tell some other people. Those other people come up. Bit by bit, it turns into a thing, and then the office is like, oh yeah, we have a choir. That's how that goes. There are two standard routes into main choiring. You're either a pianist or organist who then becomes assistant musical director, then becomes musical director. So having spent years and years watching people do it, you pick up things and become that person. The other one is somebody who's a very good singer. They have a bit of an ear, so they arrange, let's mm. call it that, things together. So they're quite good for that. And then people enjoy doing them, so they land up running choirs too. And it's a fascinating thing that in the UK, apparently, the research now says that 30,000 people more per week go and sing in a choir than play amateur level football, which means that the UK's national pastime sport is choiring. It's not football. So just getting together and being part of a community is such an old thing. We used to do it and we've lost that. And we don't even sit together for meals anymore. I run, for instance, a choir for people who suffer from a very specific form of cancer and they don't get to meet each other very much because it's a rare form. So it's a way for them to be free, laugh and sing and have some enjoyment, to be free of that for a moment in their minds. Cool. That's really interesting. And didn't know you were doing a choir for cancer patients. It's that opportunistic things come and you could say yes or you could say no. And I said yes. Luckily, they asked me in 2018, right? Right. So final sort of more rapid question. Do you have any favorite books that you'd really recommend? My favorite book of all time was Dune by Frank Herbert. It's very deep and meaningful. Mm. I enjoyed the social hierarchy. I enjoyed the concept that the human mind could be way more powerful if we let it, if we allowed it to be free. Which, interestingly, if you watch the Amazon Prime show now, Altered Carbon, the lead character is literally exactly a conceptual build of that character type that Frank Herbert created in Dune. They're called Envoys in this new Amazon show. Anyway, Frank Herbert's definitely that sci-fi book and the six sequels that come after it. Enjoy, if you're a sci-fi buff. But I think This Is Your Brain on Music by Daniel Levitin is definitely a get and read. I've bought eight copies of this book and never finished it because I keep giving it, gifting it because it's so good. But in the first 50 to 75 pages, I learned stuff about music that I didn't know after 25 years of doing it, which is ridiculous. But Daniel Levitin, he was an amazing record producer. A lot of my stories come from some of his pages of his mm. book because they're great. So that's definitely one of my go read this. Cool. Okay. What is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? My mom had me. My wife married me. I've had so many people be so inordinately kind. I am such 
mess up of a person that there are a long list of people my guardians people applied for me for awards the people who have housed me done all kinds of stuff i'm a crazy live by the moment musician i'll send you a list we can attach it to the podcast cool how did the british citizen award come about was that people applied for you yeah somebody from the choir that we both go to together in fact person who naturally exuberant quite loud and, and quite big but who works in mental health and so i guess saw very quickly that the potential phenomenal impact that the activity of doing what we did together has on so many people and they saw that i do it for a lot of groups so i guess he thought that that was worth something um i've been doing music for 35 years i've been running choirs for 25 so i've been doing this with a lot of people I've worked with people in rehabilitation homes and rarely, but sometimes with kids in Prus, pupil referral units. So I've had all these situations and every time choir gets together, they can do something good. So we've worked on bazillion charities. There is a lot of positive impact that comes off the back of doing what we do. And I say we because there are a lot of people who do what I do. Okay, then what is your most vivid memory from childhood? I'm still a child. I remember watching The NeverEnding Story on a very stormy night in the movie room when we went back home to India and I, because of the educational system shift and my parents being missionaries, with Christian scholarships, they could get me to a boarding school. So I went to Hebron. Obviously in India, it's so hot. So all the internationals send all the kids to these international schools and the international schools are built on a hill station. The highest point in this school was the swimming pool. So we had to go from our dormitory to the movie room. And it was a massive round room with a curved floor, like a bowl. And you could just lounge around and watch this movie. So I remember on a massive stormy night, actually watching NeverEnding Story and being feeling like we were the kid in the movie. Um, because mm. it was on a stormy night that he goes up to the attic and reads the book. And then having to go back from that room to our dorm in the rain. I remember that. That was when I was eight. <laughs> Random. You think things. it would have been a musical memory, but no. Nice. Okay, then is there anything that I haven't asked you or that people should know about? I think I'm increasingly discovering in the last year, meeting people like you, Sam. It's fascinating when you discover that maybe you have something to say and that maybe just being you is an interesting thing. And your life has accumulated wisdom, has accumulated experience, has accumulated insight and those bits are really fascinating and I'm really honoured, Sam, that you would ask me to come along and sit down and talk. And I find it really strange when people do that because I'm like, well, why? Why me? I'm just trundling along, doing my thing. But maybe somewhere underneath all of that, the processes by which somebody comes to the decisions they make and the way that they do their job, maybe there's little bits of magic in there somewhere. So what I'm discovering is that people should be a little bit more aware that maybe they carry that magic around and that they should be willing to Remember that when they feel like they're losing, remember that actually they could figure out a way out of the box that they feel like they're in right now. And that's interesting to me. Yeah. It's like there's the fallacy of whatever you know, you feel like other people know already. They did that study where they got people to tap out a tune and the other person guess it. And they thought 50% of the time the person would get it right. And only 2% of the time would the other person be able to guess what the hell these weird taps were. Yeah. And in the same way, your life doesn't seem that incredible because of you saw everything that happened and it sort of seemed like, hey, I made this decision, it made sense to me. And when you have all these insights that you've learned, you had to make lots of mistakes to actually get to this great insight and you don't feel that proud about the fact that you eventually got there. But for other people, it's like, oh, wow, that's a really good story. I can actually learn from that. And it makes more sense. You think of how much people don't know about your life, whereas if you just only think about your own perspective, it doesn't seem so good. What you said there was gold. You sometimes play down your achievements because you know how long it took you to get there and you feel Mm. stupid for it or less brilliant than you could have been. But maybe Mm. it took a brilliant person to keep battering away at the thing until you got there. Cool. Okay. And then the last thing is, is there anything you want to ask me? When does the check run? No. (laughs) So I find it fascinating. 
that you have the patience to sit and just listen to people ramble about their lives. So have you found a commonality, like a theme that mm. spoke to you from people? Do you clock consistency over people? Everyone I've spoken to has had a bit of a growth mindset, but maybe that's because I'm searching for it because I'm always asking in the Growth Mindset podcast. And people do make a lot of mistakes. And the people that are successful are the ones that do pick themselves up and they are passionate, like you say, about what it is they want to do and they have some drive to get there. And this is the thing that's fascinating to me, trying to identify our own sense of magic. Yeah, what I have learned is that everyone is interesting. Even the people that, when I have an interview that feels quite bad, they'll often ramble, like you said. But then if you cut it down, there's lots of genius in what they're saying sometimes. And a lot of people have some really great things inside them that you just completely miss if you just listen to everything they say and you have to ask the right questions. Do that with me. I'm hoping that I am able to talk for hours quite happily. So I'm looking forward to hearing how this Mm. turns out. Yeah, I've enjoyed the whole thing. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, man. Thanks for making time. Really looking forward to what you focus on this year and how that goes. So that was Nav. What a legend. As always, I like to break down my top tips from the episode and let's get into it. Number one, learn to say no. Sometimes your greatest strength can be your greatest weakness. And when you love helping people and delivering over and above what is asked for you, you can quickly find yourself spread too thin and things become stressful and difficult and not as good as they should be. Both Nav and I suffer from this quite a lot. And when you learn to say no and be protective of your time, then you can truly deliver at a top level on just a few focused projects, then things just become a whole lot better. Number two, love what you are doing. To succeed in the arts, you have to just love the art that you're doing, whether it's writing, painting, or music. It shouldn't be about fame or other things because that won't come instantly and you just won't enjoy yourself. You'll constantly be questioned and challenged by what you're doing and if you don't love it, you'll probably give up and it'll just be a bit pointless. So I really liked his example that a banker doesn't have to get tested to see if he can be a banker every week. But as an artist, you are constantly auditioning to even be able to do your job. And it's pretty demoralizing if you just don't really love the art of doing whatever it is that you're doing. So you've got to love it. Number three. The last tip leads nicely into this tip, which is another huge point about having the right goals and metrics of success to measure them. So when the choir were in a really big competition on the BBC, they put in loads of work and hours and they had a really awesome experience and they massively grew the profile of the choir. Every person involved really gained new skills and they just made beautiful music. Yet because they didn't win the competition, they felt like failures and had burnout and got a bit depressed. So if you could just remove the bit where you mentioned that they're in a competition and just said that, hey guys, you're going to be on TV to millions of people and you're going to be awesome. It sounds amazing and hardly something to be depressed about. So before you do anything, it's important to remind yourself what's the real value from what you're doing and what you want to get out of it before you chase the wrong goals and then get let down by things when actually you shouldn't be. And now a bonus tip. Nominate someone for an award. So being nominated for the BCA award was one of the best things that happened to Nav and he really deserved it. So similarly with a previous guest I had, Lisa Forte, who was nominated for the top 100 women in tech. It's just great when someone who really deserves the recognition gets it. So I'm pretty sure we all must know someone in our community that deserves more recognition. Just nominate them, whether it's for a BCA award or top person in tech or any other thing. If someone has been making your day brighter, Try giving back to them and give them a nomination. 
If they're doing great work already, they'll be able to do twice as much if you give them a little bit of help. And they do say that when you're developing gratitude, you should write more letters to people that deserve your thanks. But try going one step further and get them a nice award. It's five times better and I'm sure you'll feel fantastic if your local favourite person gets an award because of you. So why not? Now on to books. Nav recommends Dune by Frank Herbert. And I've been recommended this book by so many people that I respect who love all the same books as me. I've tried to read this book three times and I've failed every time. I got to the 100th page and was still like, I just don't think I'm reading the same book as everybody else. I mean, there's lots of boring characters whose names I keep on forgetting talking about sand. But anyway, it seems like everyone else but me loves it. So probably you will too, even though I don't. I think I'm actually going to try it again eventually after I've read the other 300 books on my list that I have this year. Book number two is This Is Your Brain on Music by Daniel Levitin. Now this book sounds awesome. If you're into psychology, happiness or music, it sounds like the book for you. And on that is the end of the podcast. I hope you have a lovely, fantastic, awesome week. You've just listened to an episode of the Growth Mindset Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your preferred app and give me a good rating as these go a really long way. If you are unable to give good feedback right now, try sharing the show with a friend who will, or just wait for the show to improve. If you have any ideas for the show or you just want to chat, then please reach out to me on Twitter at Sam Harris Tweets or Instagram at Sam Jam Snaps. Show notes and other links to topics discussed in the episodes are available at the website growthmindsetpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. Give yourself a big hug from me. If you're with a friend, give them a hug as well. And I hope you enjoy your next podcast.